0: So, we read uh, the Bible together from Matthew 17, verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill Him, and on the third day He will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and His disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, Go to the lake and throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the little child and had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. The Bible says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Well, if you have a Bible close to you, let's turn together to Matthew chapter 17, those verses that we read at the end of that chapter, page 984, 985. I remember when I was a student uh, having to write an essay entitled, Why Did Jesus Die? And in it, we were expected to explore all those sort of human factors, I suppose, that were contributing to Jesus being put on a cross, those sorts of things that we're remembering uh, very much today at our communion service. So, So, we would have written, for example, about the fact that Jesus was perceived to be a threat to the Jewish establishment. He, he won the hearts of the people and exposed the hypocrisy of the, the Jewish leadership, and it ended up in them plotting to kill Him. We, we, we would have been expected to have written about the role of the Romans too, because while the, the Jews could issue a death penalty, they didn't have the power to carry it out. They were an occupied country. The Romans reserved that right. And so, the Jews had to, to find some way of, of making some charge stick that the Romans would take notice of. And so they they said that Jesus was claiming to be king, that was a direct challenge to Roman authority. It made him liable to the death penalty. So on the one hand, why Jesus died was due to all of these very human political factors, this political scheming. Now the Bible recognizes those things, but it takes it to a whole other level when it talks about why Jesus died. It tells us that it wasn't as a result of political scheming or political jealousies. It tells us that it was as a result of God's plan. God planned it all. And we could add that Jesus died because He willingly submitted to that plan. He laid down His life as He did His Father's will. And we're going to think a little about that as we come to our communion service today today and maybe you think, well, you know, I'd really love to have heard something else today, a bit more practical. Maybe you've had a hard week. You've just sort of managed to struggle into church through the snow uh, this morning, and you're facing some big challenge, and you think, I-, I really would like to know how to deal with that today. Or maybe you felt under attack one way or another. Everything seems to be going against you, uh, and uh, you-, you-, you would love to hear something that sort of spoke into that situation. But I, I really do hope that that what we have here will do this for us. Because the truth that Jesus has died for you according to the plan and purpose of God is the most practical news ever. You think about that. You've had a hard week. You maybe face a hard week. And the knowledge that you can go into that, knowing that the the one who made the universe, who who, who orders the atoms of, of the ground under your feet, that he gave his son, that you might know him. Therefore, he he loves you very much, and so you can go into that situation knowing that he has you, and he loves you in the midst of that. This is tremendously practical. A couple of things just to to think about. Three things, very simply, to think about this morning. We're thinking about Jesus being the son of the king. That's part of. Uh, what we see here, uh, the son of the king, I uh, can't remember what my points are, let me see, uh, the son of the king, the, the, the son who, who dies, and the son that we need. That, that's, that's where we're going with this. So, first of all, He's the son of the king. How, how is it we see that? Well, Jesus and His disciples are up north still in, in the Galilee region, and they come across some tax collectors and these were particular tax collectors who had a particular job. They had to get the temple tax. Now, the temple in those days was funded by a, a smallish tax on the people, just a, a, a coin, a two drachma coin. And later on, it would become very controversial. The Romans would destroy the temple and they would divert this tax to the, um, uh, the, the pagan, one of the pagan temples in, in Rome uh, for Jupiter and the Jews really came to hate it, but, but at this time it was a minor inconvenience. It wasn't very expensive, and it was going at least to a fairly good cause as they saw it. But anyway, the tax collectors came looking for this tax from Jesus because some official religious teachers, rabbis and so on, were exempt, and so there could have been a good case to be made for Jesus not having to pay this at all. But Peter says, well, no, he does pay the temple tax, and Peter goes to see Jesus, and Peter walks into the room, and it looks as if Jesus knows exactly why he has come, and he says, what do you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own sons or from others? Now, we know that the liability, the tax liability of a royal family uh, is always a bit of a talking point within a country, but, but at those ta- days, it was fairly obvious the king had absolute authority and he was able to raise tax from whoever he wanted. And the one people that he would not have taxed were his own family. You would get some tax-exempt status if you were the son of the king. But you see, this is what Jesus is saying. He really is the son of the king. The sons are exempt, as Jesus said to him. And he sends Peter off on this fascinating fishing trip but you see how He introduces it. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him, verse 27, but so that we may not offend them, go to the lake. You see, Jesus is saying He really is exempt. He doesn't have to pay this. Why? Not because He is a rabbi or a religious professional, but because He is the son of the King. The temple was there for the worship of God. The tax was there to support the worship of God, but Jesus says, I'm the son of the one who owns the temple. I'm the son of the king. This tax is for my father's house. I'm the son of the king. So, let's remember that today. As we come around this table, the one who died for you, he's the son of the king. You know, if if anyone gave their life for you, you would be indebted to them. You would never forget them. But think of who it is who goes to the cross for you He's the son of the king. There's none above him. His standing is ultimate, and yet he goes to this lowest place, and he does it for you. What a value he places on you today, on me today, because he has done this for us. Well, well what is it he's done for us? That brings us to our, our second point. He's the son who, who dies it's very clear that Jesus doesn't need to pay the temple tax. On, on the one hand, he's a, he's a rabbi. There could be a good case uh, being made for Him to be exempt from it, and uh, it might have been that He could have appealed to the temple authorities, and it would have gone through their process, and He would have got a certificate of exemption or whatever it might be. But as we've just said, He is the, the Son of God. The temple is there to, to worship His Father, and so He really is exempt from this sort of a tax how absurd that He would pay it. And yet He does pay it. He embraces it. You see in verse 27, it says, but so that we might not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. It doesn't really make it clear how a refusal would have offended them. It's probably that they would have had a bad picture of Jesus as a sort of a tax dodger, and then they wouldn't have listened to Him. They would have just been likely to ignore anything He was going to say to them. So, Jesus pays it even though He doesn't really have to. He is, in a very small way, yes, a very, very small way, he is denying himself for the sake of others. It's just a little thing, but he denies himself and his rights. Peter would later take this call and apply it to all believers. He would say in his first letter, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us, submit yourself to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. If you have to pay tax, He's saying, you pay tax for the Lord's sake. He calls Christians to sacrificial, obedient lives, lives that are not saying, what can I get away with? but how can I live so that I can bless others and adorn the gospel? And where did he learn that? Well, he, he saw that embodied in Jesus every day that he spent with Him. But this was just a shadow of the great self-denial of Jesus, which took him to the cross. Matthew tells us that he had warned the disciples about that. We read it in verses 22 and 23. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will rise, be raised to life. So, not only does Jesus know what's going to happen when Peter throws his line into the sea, He knows what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. He knows he'll be betrayed. One of his own followers will be instrumental in handing him over. How must it have been for Jesus to to look Judas in the eye every day, knowing that that was what was going to happen? And it wasn't that he was going to get thrown into jail for a time. Verse 23 is very clear. They will kill him. He knows He's going to the cross. Every day, He, he wakens with that realization. Every day is a day, day nearer Calvary, and He never wavers, not once. But not only does He know that He will be betrayed and will be killed, He knows He will be raised to life again. His death will not be the end. The disciples didn't seem to hear that bit. They just thought about the death and all the, the nastiness of it. They didn't hear the resurrection bit or they didn't think about it. And so, it says that they are filled with grief, but Jesus is in no doubt, He will be raised. And sometimes the, the Bible talks about Jesus being, uh, rising for Himself, that, that He is the one, in a sense, who has power to do that, laying down His life and taking it up again. Uh, it, it implies, of course, that He's not an unwilling victim. But here He talks about being raised, that the Father will raise Him. His sacrifice would therefore be perfectly acceptable to God, and God will demonstrate the acceptance of all that He has done by raising Him to life. And you see, this is at God's direction. It's implied by the words that Jesus uses here when He says He'll be betrayed. Another word is that He will be handed, uh, delivered. ESV uses that word. And and it, it implies that that this is all by divine decree. God is doing this. God has planned it. I'm going here, He's saying, at my Father's direction. So, so Jesus is the Son of the King, and what does He do? He lays down His life for you. Now, the question might arise for some of us, you know, that that's a really generous thing, but do I really need that? Because some of us think, perhaps, well, I know all about Jesus dying, but, but I'm trying to find my own way here. I, I'm trying to clean up my act a bit, and I'm trying to sort myself out, and I reckon that, that God is pretty pleased with me. I'm doing okay. Well, that brings us to our third point, and that is He is the Son that we need You see, there are lots of folk who are looking at the future and saying, you know, I'd really like to think that I've done pretty well with my life. Lots of our friends and neighbors, maybe some of us think like that. God will open the doors of heaven for me. Not perfect, but I'm pretty good. Let me tell you something about heaven. Revelation 21 speaks of it, and it says, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. Nothing impure. So, heaven is a, a pure and perfect place, nothing impure, n- no one or no, or, no, or no thing will enter it. And you think about that? If, if a glass of water is perfect, distilled, pure water, and you drop the tiniest speck of dirt into it, what has happened? It's no longer pure. The tiniest impurity would, would ruin heaven. In other words, how good do you have to be to get into a, a nothing impure place? Well, you have to be perfect, don't you? So, so you can't just say, well, I'm working on it. I'm trying hard to improve. You've got to get 100%. Now, look at these disciples. They had been with Jesus for coming on three years every day. They had the very best example right in front of them, someone who they could measure their lives against, someone who they could check themselves against, who was perfectly following God. In other words, if there was anybody who could make it by themselves, who could make it by by following Jesus' example, by being good by themselves, they were the people who could do that. They had the best chance of anyone. And yet, what do we see in chapter 18, verse 1? We find that the disciples initiate a conversation with Jesus about how things are going to be in His kingdom. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they say. Now, that's not some theoretical question of theology. Who's the greatest Christian who's ever lived? Nothing like that. They're figuring out that Jesus is the Messiah, that He's going to usher in His kingdom, and they have all the wrong expectations of that, of course, as we know, but but they know that it's coming. And so, they're saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom? In other words, who's going to get the top jobs in this kingdom? Sometimes, whenever uh, I'm driving my kids about, they, 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 they run up to the car and shout shotgun. Is that, is that anything that ever happens in, in your, yeah? So, so, shotgun apparently is, is the, the opportunity to ride shotgun beside the driver. It's the front seat. And so, they race to the car and they shout shotgun and, and we have to navigate the battle that, that ensues after that. And this is what the disciples were doing. They were, they were saying, I'm claiming shotgun in the kingdom. Who's going to be in the seat beside the driver? So, here they have this great, humble example of Jesus for three years. And what do we find? Sinful, selfish hearts. They want to grab it for themselves and push others away. They are so far from being those pure and perfect beings who could enter heaven by themselves. They could never do that. And that's why Jesus came, because they couldn't do that for themselves. And you know what? Neither can we we need His perfect righteousness. We need our sins forgiven. We need His perfect righteousness passed over to us so that we can stand faultless before the throne. And you see, this is our only hope today, and and this table says that to us. It says there's no other way. Give up your self-salvation project because Jesus has died so that you can be rescued. But many of us are believers today. We're trusting in Jesus. We have come to him in faith. How are we doing? How do we come here to church this morning, come into communion? Do we come thinking, what a good Christian I am? It's just helpful to check in around the Lord's table and be reminded of that. Well, that's not how it is, is it? We, we, we come and we're deeply aware of our sin. We're aware of how, as His followers, we have messed up. We, we let Him down so often. We have so far to go. We sometimes feel as if we get worse rather than better. Don't you feel that? And if we feel like that, is there hope for us? Would Jesus have anything to do for those with people like that whom He had been forgiven, and they go on to sort of mess up? Is there hope for us? Where does Jesus in this story predict His death? What does it come between? Well, let me tell you. It comes after the story that we looked at last week, where those self-confident disciples fail to be able to cast out the demon in the young boy because they were trusting in themselves rather than Jesus, they, and they were just limping along. You remember that? They were powerless in the battle. They were self-reliant. comes after that. It comes before chapter 18, verse 1, where, where some of these disciples brazenly try to grab the top jobs in the kingdom. So, so it comes after self-reliant disciples. It comes before self-centered disciples. Jesus talks about His death and His resurrection, bookended by those two stories. Does that help us? Is there hope for you and for me? Jesus died for your sin, not only your sin as an unbeliever, but your sin as a believer too. 1 John 1 and 9, if we confess our sins, written to Christians, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So, as we come today to the Lord Jesus, we come empty but confident that we will be filled. We, we come humble but but confident that we will be be welcomed. And we come broken, but knowing that He will put us together. Because He's the Son of the King. He's the Son of the King who dies for you. He's the Son of the King who does that because you, you can't make it. I can't make it on my own. And we continue to need His forgiveness and His mercy no matter how long we've been following Him. But He dies for sinners. You're so sinful. You know what the gospel says. You're so sinful that He had to die for you. But brother or sister, today, you are so loved that He was glad to die for you. Thank God for the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to pray just now, and we'll, at the end of this prayer, pronounce the benediction, and that will be this part of our morning over. There'll be a short break then and people can move about as they need to do so. So, let's pray together. Lord, sometimes Your, your, mirror, your, your Word is like a, a mirror that allows us to see ourselves or a torch that shines light into the dark places of our lives. And we sort of feel that today, that, that our self-reliance and our self-centeredness is easily highlighted, How, how we praise you that in the midst of this, knowing what you know about us, the Lord Jesus talked about His death, His death that would pay for our sin and would provide for us a perfect righteousness. Lord, thank You for the great love that You have that has reached out to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that You will keep Him before us at all times. And we ask that grace and mercy and peace from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be with each of us now and forever.